Sabbath day. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the time to be together. Lord, we're thankful for even the, uh, the decision in our country to set apart a day to honor dads and a month earlier moms. And Lord, just for the important place uh, that those two positions and roles play in the life of our families, certainly, um, but in our communities, in our nation, in this world. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing uh, on, particularly today, on the dads, the grandpops. We pray you would bless uh, those men in their efforts and their endeavors uh, to pour in well into the lives of uh, their children, their grandchildren. But we know that uh, doing that is a 24-7 job, uh, perhaps with sleeping time off. But, but Lord, uh, it's such a very important and vital role that you've raised men up for. And so, Lord, we pray for the uh, enabling of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we continue, as dads, we continue to lay down our own lives. Lord, that we might be uh, servant leaders of others. Lord, our desire uh, is to represent you well so that folks, as they think of their own dad, they might more readily embrace uh, the perfect father, you. So, Lord, be blessed, be honored, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a saying that... Uh, the three most important things to teaching are repetition, repetition, and repetition. And so I will draw your attention to the purpose for why Paul wrote this book. If you weren't with us, it'll kind of put you on the same page as everybody else. If you've been with us and you think, come on, man, not again. Uh, repetition, rep I didn't make up the rule. Uh, repetition, repetition, repetition. And so the purpose of Paul writing this book to Timothy is recorded for us in chapter 3 of this book. And so if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, he says, look, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you in order that, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now again, he's not exclusively speaking about when you come into the house of God, into the church building, he's not exclusively talking about that. He's talking about the general order of things in the congregation of believers, which is the church. Remember, the church isn't a building. It's the people that go into that particular building. But in this conversation that Paul is having, portions of his instructions to Timothy are going to be about the proper order of worship in a congregational setting. And today, he's going to jump into some of those topics. I've been using a phrase here that I think it really succinctly summarizes that charge from chapter 3. And the phrase is that Timothy was sent there to attain and then maintain order in that congregation. Unfortunately, we know that there were some elders in that congregation from when Paul talked to them in Acts, somewhere around chapter 19 or so, to here now where he's writing to Timothy, a period that could be about 20 years, somewhere during that time period, there were leaders of that congregation that veered off, and they went after their own things. He talks about that in chapter 1. Paul says, Timothy, I can't make it there, but I need you to go there as my representative and bring things back to where they need to be. 
attain order, and then stick around there and maintain order. Now, the very first area that Paul began to address in that regard was chapter 2. So chapter 1, here's the problem, and here's how they veered off. Chapter 2, so here's what I want you to do. And the very first order or uh, topic was the, or, the uh, idea of prayer. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, First of all then, so we see, first in order in the first topic, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And he goes on, he even talks about the leaders and, of our society, all that kind of stuff. Related to that topic of prayer, but progressing now to a new topic, is what he's going to bring up in verse 8. And so if you look at verse 8, he says, I desire then in every place that the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And so as he did then in that opening uh, admonition, once more Paul is talking about prayer. And here now, he's talking about the form that that prayer should take when the people gather together. Notice he says in verse 8, he says, I desire that in every place. So he uses that important phrase, and it'll become an important phrase. He says, I desire that in every place that the men should, lifting up holy hands, be praying. Now, at first glance, we might look at that, and we might walk away from that thinking, oh, what Paul is encouraging is that like, wherever you go, without ceasing, be in prayer. And that is a concept that Paul is talking about. Wherever you go, in every place, be about prayer. And again, that is a concept that Paul is talking about. I don't think it's the admonition he is giving here. If you look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So if you walked away from this verse thinking, Paul's telling me that I should always be about prayer, pretty good. I'll give you a C. All right, that's certainly something you should be doing. It's not something you shouldn't be doing here, but I don't think that's what Paul is getting at in this instance. I don't think that's his point here. Here in 1 Timothy, he's not talking about that communion that we seek to enjoy with God every moment of every day of our lives, that communion that comes as a result of us practicing the presence of God. You're driving your car, you're communing with the Lord. You're doing your work at your desk, you're communing with the Lord. That's good. God wants that. But again, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Here, he's speaking about prayers that are being prayed as part of the gathering of a local congregation. And so you'll notice in verse 8 where he says there, I desire that in, in every place. That's a phrase. It's a couple of words actually in the original, but it's a, it becomes a phrase in the English language that Paul uses four times in his writings. Paul's the only one that uses that phrase in the New Testament. And it pops up four times in Paul's writings, and in every instance that it is used, it's referring to the congregational setting. And so we can safely uh, conclude that what Paul is talking about in each of those other instances is what he is talking about here. If you're interested, those places are 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 2 Corinthians 2, 14, 1 Thessalonians 1, 8, and then here in 1 Timothy 2, 8. So he's referring to when the congregation, we'll put it this way, when the congregation officially gathers, much like what we are doing here this morning. Not talking about when two or three believers are gathered together and the Lord is there in the midst, 
We know that, but he's talking about when the congregation officially comes together, we'll use another phrase that is popular, to have church. We're going to get together, we're going to have church. All right, you've heard people say that? That young man did. Very good. Thank you, Tony. All right, for the record, it was Tony. Paul says, when the church comes together to have church, I desire that in every place, as we'll see, that's not just Ephesus. Remember, Timothy was sent to go uh, maintain order, attain order in Ephesus. He says, I desire that in every place that the men should pray. Now, depending on the English translation you are reading, this may either be the third time that the word men are used or the first time that the word men is used. In some of the older languages in the King James, it uses the English word men in verse 1, in verse 4, and in verse 8. And we've already made our way through verses 1 and 4. And what we learned there is that the Greek word that is used that in the older versions is translated in English to the word men is really the Greek word for the word humanity. And that's why a lot of the more modern versions will use the word people there. And so in King James, it says, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Again, the more modern versions use people. And I think that's more accurate of what it's trying to communicate. It's the, word, it's the way we use the word men when we're talking about humanity or mankind. That's verses one and verse four. However, here in verse 8, Paul uses a different Greek word. And he's not using the Greek word, it's anthropos, which means humanity. He's not using that Greek word, which means humanity, but he's using the specific Greek word, it's aner, which means male or men. So he's shifted here in verse 8. And as you'll see in, in verse 9, he's going to, and for the ladies, I think that's how I say it, and for the women, he'll talk about, address them in verse 9. But here in verse 8, he has shifted from everybody, you all need to hear this, to specifically, gentlemen, I want you to tune in to what I'm about to say to you. He uses this new word. In light of where our culture is today and the cultural debates that we're having in our society today, please take note that the Bible very clearly makes a distinction between male and female. Here's one of those examples. And so Timothy is about to set uh, out to attain and maintain order in this Ephesian congregation. And he's instructed that it is the men that are to be the ones to take the lead in those congregations or in that congregation. And as he returns to the subject of prayer, he now shifts to the practice of public prayer or what we might call congregational prayer. And this time he directs his attention to those that should be leading the people in that sort of prayer. Again, he transitioned from the word humanity to the word for male. And in doing so, he's unequivocally stating that it was his expectation that that public prayer, now we can debate what that looks like and what that means, but that that public prayer should be led by the men of the congregation as opposed to the women of the congregation. And the point, which he's going to develop further, is that it's Paul's understanding that it was to be the men that were to be the leaders of those that were placed into their care. We know from other places in the scripture that men in the hierarchy of God, that God has called us to be leaders 
in our families. And here I believe we see that God has called men to be the leaders in the local congregation of the church. Sadly, men, too often we have shirked that responsibility. I work hard enough during the week, I'll just come and I'll sit and I'll let the ladies do what they want to do. I work hard during the day, I'll come home, I'll let my wife kind of run the home. Too often, men, we have shirked our responsibility and the leadership roles that God has called us to be about. Notice how Paul continues. He says that it's the men here. I I probably shouldn't have emphasized the word men. I don't know why I did. But that it's the men that are to lift up, he says, holy hands in prayer. Now, the lifting up of hands as one was praying was a common posture of prayer in the ancient culture or in ancient cultures, particularly in public prayer. And so the person would come and they would lift up their hands and everybody would join them as they would pray in that very public way. That's not really our culture. Our culture, you know, often, hey, why don't we pray together? And what does everybody do? They drop their head. Maybe they fold their hands. Everyone doesn't go like this or whatever. Some churches do. Um, you know, it's a little out there. Uh, anyhow, so, we, you know, we drop our heads and we bow, we uh, fold our hands. Here's the reality. The, the posture of your prayer is never as important as the attitude of your heart. All right, so whether you want to lift up your hands, you want to bow, we see throughout the scripture whole, all different kinds of examples of how people are praying. There are instances where people do have the outstretched hands, almost like they're trying to reach to heaven. We have instances in the Bible where people are praying and they're kneeling. We have instances where people are sitting and praying, bowing their head and praying, lifting their face and praying. And then we have some instances where people are falling down on their face as they pray. And so it's not so much the physical posture as it is the attitude of the heart. That's the important thing. And so Paul doesn't here just say, and men, I desire that you lift hands and pray. He says, I desire that you lift holy hands and pray. Because that addresses the posture of the heart, not just the posture of the body. The hands symbolize, we see it a number of times, particularly see it in some of the poetic writing like the Psalms. Uh, The hands symbolize the activities of life, what you're busy about, what you're doing, you know, with your hands, your feet in some instances here. So holy hands then would represent a holy life. To use a different term that Paul uses in another place, a blameless life. And that is a prerequisite for effective prayer, is this idea of a blameless life. Paul, or the psalmist wrote this. He said, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me or would not have listened. Now, that's not to say that such a person is perfect, that such a person is without sin. They're blameless. You can't blame them for anything. Here, that's not what that point is about. Rather, it's to say that such a person is not playing around with sin. That's what the idea of blamelessness means. And that's this idea of not cherishing iniquity in our hearts. We're not playing around with sin. We're not compromising in our lives. There's no hypocrisy. We don't portray ourselves to be one thing when in reality we are something else. The person that is blameless, when they do fail... When they do sin, they're quick to acknowledge that failure. They're quick to acknowledge that fall. They're quick to go to God and, as 1 John says, confess their sin. Agree with God that it is sin, knowing that God will bring about a cleansing in the promise promise of his word. And so, 
whether you are praying as the official representative of the congregation, as I think Paul is talking about here, or simply as the official representative of your own life, when you're going to God in prayer, you need to make sure that you're doing so without any hypocrisy, that you're not cherishing iniquity in your heart, that there's not this unrepentant sin in your life. The person with unrepentant sin should never expect that God is going to answer their prayers. Again, the psalmist said, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If you want to go to God with confidence that he's going to hear your prayer, you need to do so with a life that is backed up in sincerity and not playing around with sin. So Paul says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands. And then he adds, without anger and without quarreling, or without anger and quarreling. If you have a, an older translation there, or a different translation there, it might use the word doubting. Without anger or doubting. Now that's very different. What are we talking about? Doubting? Are we talking about quarreling? What are we talking about? Well, I'll explain in a moment how we kind of have that, that, that divergent thinking there. Let's talk first about this idea of angering. Anger. Angering. Let's just make up words today. Um, why not, right? It's one thing to have anger or frustration when you're alone in your prayer closet and you're dealing with things. I think it's good. Go to God with what's making you angry. Lord, this is just oh, driving me crazy. And more often than not, say, yeah, you know, you drive people crazy too. Yes, Lord, you're right, I do. You know, and so you, that's good. You want to go with God. We don't pretend you're not angry about something or frustrated about something. So it's one thing to go to God in anger, frustration, bitterness, whatever it might be, when you're in your own little prayer closet. Or maybe with, when you're with that prayer team of people that you trust and they trust you and you, know, you can have that honest conversation with them and then go before God together. It is an entirely different matter when you're going before God's throne as the representative of a body of believers and a congregation. So that, that place of public prayer, that's not the place to be working things out. Uh, you know, for everyone here who's like, what's he talking about? Like, he hates that guy or whatever. That's not the place where that sort of thing is to happen. And may I add this, prayer, public prayer, is not the place to send messages to other people. Don't you love those prayers? Prayers like, Lord, I just pray that you would help certain people, and Lord, you know who they are, that they would be less jerky, you know, or whatever. That's not the place to do that, to send your little messages to somebody else here. I really like what one guy said. He said, to introduce disputes into prayer is to pray at one another instead of to God. And our prayers always have to be to the Lord. We're not sending messages. We're not trying to make little points there when the person can't. Well, I have a rebuttal. I would like to pray. And Lord, I pray that like, this is not what God intended. And so in the same way that the person that cherishes iniquity in their hearts, in the same way that that person shouldn't expect that God is going to hear and answer their prayers, so too the one that prays with anger and with quarreling. You know what? Just take a break. Go get your heart right, and then come back and say your public prayers. It's important. Now, the second term that is used there is the word quarreling, at least in the version that I'm reading. And that verse has, or that word has caused some confusion. So the, I read the English Standard Version. That's what I'm working from here this morning. I read, uh, I don't know what I read at home, the American 
standard or something or another. Um, you know, so I, I read different versions. I don't have a problem with that necessarily. But the one I happen to be using here today is the ESV. And the confusion is that the term, it has to do with, in the original, this idea of quarreling with oneself. So quarreling is certainly involved. And so it says, without anger or quarreling. But it has the idea of quarreling with oneself. And you think of a person that is quarreling with themselves, and you're talking about a person that's sort of wrestling through some things. I don't know, should I go to this thing? No, you don't want to go to that thing. It'll be boring. You go to the, and you're kind of wrestling. You're fighting. You're arguing, but with yourself. Well, what we call that is, what should I do? I don't know what I should do. I do this. We call that doubting. And that's why some versions come up with that. So there, there's a journey for how the translations were formed here. And here is one of those where we're not quite sure what it means. Now, in the context of anger, quarreling with another fits, doesn't it? Certainly so. And so this is not going to be one of those instances where you're like, well, I don't know if it means that. All right, well, it talks about not being in anger, and that is covered by quarreling with, with other people. So you're safe uh, in there if your takeaway is I shouldn't be praying while I'm quarreling with somebody else. It seems to me, however, that Paul is really trying to communicate this idea of not praying with doubting or not praying with a lack of faith. And that is also an idea that is touched on in other scriptures. And so once again, we can be safe, at the very least, if this passage doesn't mean it, the concept is nonetheless true, because other passages talk about that as well. Are you with me, how I'm kind of wrestling through this here? So that does resonate with other scriptures. Jesus said this. He said, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. All right? Or the converse, don't pray in unbelief. All right? Pray without doubting. The book of James says this, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. And so when we come to God in prayer, especially, if you will, as that select representative in public prayer, congregational prayer, we are instructed to do so without like anger and indignation and malice, we're not trying to send messages in our prayer. And then also here, without doubt. Warren Wearsby, I like him a lot, he said this. He says, we're to come to God with no sin, no quarrel, and no doubt. And such are the types of prayers that God answers. Now Paul is going to transition. And he does so with one of those transition words that we find a lot in Paul's writings. So Paul will, if you read his writings, uh, his New Testament epistles, Often he'll use words like but or therefore. Many of his chapters begin with those kinds of words. Well, here he has one of those transition words. It's the word likewise. And but or therefore or likewise, it, it requires, you can't just jump into the verse because he says likewise. Well, likewise as opposed to what? Well, that which came before it. And so you have to go back, or therefore, well, what are we talking about? How'd you come to that conclusion? We got to go back to the verse that is before it. And so here we have another one of those instances where Paul's going to draw our attention to a portion of the previous verse. And in this instance, the portion of the previous verse is that he desired something in verse 8. He now desires something in verse 9. He said in verse 8, I desire that the men in every place, and go on to do these things, be praying with holy hands and so on. He says, likewise, here. And so what we can do is borrow what his command was from verse 8, he says, likewise, so we can borrow, I desire that the women 
in every place. Are you with me? How will we get to that? And so as we come to verse 9, Paul's going to shift his attention from the men that he would have to take an active role in spiritually leading others to those things which should characterize the women that make up a portion of the body of Christ, which is his church. And specifically here, he turns his attention should, uh, to how they should interact with others as they gather together. Again, as the church comes together to do church, he draws uh, their attention in this teaching as to how they should interact with one another. He says this, like, and I'm going to add those words I mentioned earlier, likewise in every place I desire that, and then this is what he says, that the women should adorn themselves with modesty and self-control, that's verse 9, continuing in verse 9, I desire that in every place that the women should adorn themselves not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, and then he says in verse 10, but I desire that in every place but they should adorn themselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, many in our culture, and culture, don't forget, it refers to both, both place and time, uh, and the place and time in which we live. Many in our culture dismiss Paul's writings here, and they dismiss them as being outdated or as being sexist, or in some cases they dismiss them, look, Paul, stay in your lane. You're a man. You have no right to speak into these particular areas here. This is none of your business. As the beloved senator from Hawaii recently said, the men should just sit down and shut up. I didn't like that, as you can imagine. Yelling at my TV, you sit down and shut up. It didn't do any effect. However, believing that God's word much of which was written by the Apostle Paul, particularly the New Testament, believing that God's word, this is God's word, we certainly cannot take that sort of approach to Scripture. You know, Paul didn't have a right to speak into this issue. That's not the best way we want to approach our study of the Scripture. And so, since our culture is likely not going to agree with the ideas that Paul communicates here, we have to ask ourselves, do we want the biblical text to define how we operate as a congregation, or do we want the culture at large to define how we operate as a con uh, congregation? Because the reality of, is this. If we don't let the biblical text speak into how we operate as a congregation, the culture will. We're just products of our culture. And so the culture will dictate and move us in the direction that it's naturally flowing, perhaps a little bit slower than you know, the pace that the water is flowing, but nonetheless in that direction. And so when we read, consider, and hopefully apply the words of God, we do so ready to receive what it is that he wants to speak into our lives. Paul says this. These are some of the words that he used. I read it a moment ago, but he said respectable. He used that word, respectable apparel. He used the word modesty. He used the word, in some versions, propriety and self-control. Other versions use words like decency and appropriate. Some of the old versions use a fun word. It's shamefacedness. Or if it's a little more amplified, it's that which should cause shamefacedness. Um, so a lot of interesting terms that are used here. And so whether it is, and this is what Paul's addressing, whether it is to flaunt what you got physically, and obviously we're talking about your looks, 
or financially, your fancy clothing and your accessories, Paul here is saying, look, the church meeting is not the place for such attire. When, the, when people come together to do church, it's not to flaunt what you got, physically or financially. In so many words, Paul says this, when you put it together with verse 10, look, if you want to adorn yourself in such a way that people are like, that guy, or gal, I guess, that gal. Adorn yourself, he says at the end there, with good works. His point, if you're going to draw anyone to yourself, let those people be drawn to you, not because of your outward appearance, but because of your inward person. That's the point that Paul is trying to make here. Again, he uses words like respectable apparel. That's, that's the one some versions translate propriety. Propriety asks a couple of questions of itself. It asks questions like, is this appropriate for the occasion? Is this going to call appropriate attention to myself? So think about it this way. Let's say you're at, you're just in the middle of a shopping area, and someone's wearing a bathing suit. You're like, wow, someone's wearing a bathing suit in the middle of Target. And then you're at the beach. Which of those seems inappropriate? It seems to fit here, doesn't it? It doesn't seem to fit over here. It's the exact same thing. And yet there's something about this. You're like, whoa, what's going on here? Why are we half naked uh, in Target? Um, it's my general rule. I don't wear my bathing suit to Target. And I would recommend you don't either. Anyway, he says propriety. Is it appropriate for the occasion? Is this going to call inappropriate attention to myself? What it also means here is avoiding anything that would cause shame. Cause shame. That's that word shamefacedness, which, again, some amplified versions translate as that which should cause shamefacedness, like an embarrassment on the person. Now, again, we live in a society where, you ever watch these? Maybe you shouldn't, but do you ever watch, like, the award shows? It's like they're competing with one another for who could have the most outlandish, revealing outfit. Like, oh, my goodness. Aren't you ashamed? Is your mom watching? Like, what is, what is your dad? Like, what's he think about what you're wearing here? But no, we're having contests to see who could be more out there. Interesting, that shamefacedness doesn't only have to refer to the person wearing the clothes that you would think would be a little bit embarrassed about what they're exposing, but also to those that are taking it in. And so we're sitting amongst that person, and we're almost a little bit embarrassed by what that person is wearing or that person's appearance. That's the point. That's the point that Paul is going to go on to make in the next section here, where he says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, hair braided with gold, silver, and pearls. This isn't just talking about having your hair braided. You know, you have little girls, they come in, and they get the, the things, you know. What, I don't know what they do, you know, whatever. You, but... There's two of them usually, and you're like, you're so cute today, you know, this kind of thing. We're not talking about that, that that's somehow inappropriate here. Notice, it's hair braided with gold, with silver, with pearls. That was a custom that was prevalent in the fashion of the first century Roman society, and it was the custom of interweaving into the hair, into the braids, strips of gold or silver or strings of pearls. And what it would do is it would cause the hair, the woman's hair, to sort of glisten as the sun hit it. And Paul's point is, or its point was, designed to draw attention to the outward appearance of the person. 
Now you might say, well, that's not very sexy to me. That's not the point there. It's the wealth there. This is what I have. I have all these resources and I'm able to do this and ooh, watch it sparkle here and people are like, wow, they're so wealthy. They have everything. I wish I had what they have. You see where we're going here? And what that serves to do is divide the haves and the have-nots in a local congregation. Paul said, that's not the place for this. I'm not sure anywhere is the place for this, but it's certainly not when people come together so that you can show off how much you have, again, whether it's the looks or it's the resources. You can show how much you have while other people don't have. All you're doing is dividing. All you're doing is driving people apart. And that causes shamefacedness for those that don't have. And Paul says, what are we doing? Why are we allowing this? The body of Christ is one body and should be drawn together as one body in love. And these actions are driving people apart from one another. And Paul would say they need to stop. All they serve to do is alienate as opposed to bring together. And all they do is appeal to the flesh as opposed to the spirit. Now, in that day, it was braided hair with gold, silver, and pearls. In our day, it, it's almost certainly something different. I've never seen a lady, maybe at a wedding, uh, the lady getting married at the wedding, but I've never seen the braided hair with you know, for, uh, jewelry and stuff like that. So what does it look like in our day? Well, it might be fancy and elaborate hairdos or hats. You ever been to those churches? You see them on TV? I think there's probably a reality show that is out there about church ladies and hats and who can have the more elaborate hat or the fanciest hat. And people can talk about that. You can wear a hat if you want to church, but if you're out there shopping for the fanciest of hats so everyone will be talking about your fancy hat, you shouldn't do that. All right, Paul, come on, don't do that. Maybe it has something to do with super expensive clothing in our culture. Fancy shoes. Even men struggle with this. Preachers with, what's that show? With $3,000 shoes or something? Sneakers or something? I feel like there's more important things to do with $3,000 than buy sneakers. Some of you looking at my clothing says, we agree <laughs> that that is what you think. Um, maybe it's fancy handbags. I don't know. Look, I, I know that I am not the one to speak into uh, sort of women's fashion and weigh in my opinion on women's fashion. I struggle with men's fashion, all right? So I understand that completely. But I do know this. For the most part, we know what our hearts are trying to communicate and do and accomplish. And so I think good questions then, if you know, you're into the, the hairdo and the hat, why are you wearing that particular hairdo? Why are you wearing that particular hat? Why the fancy braid? Why the pearls? Why the jewelry? What is it you're trying to accomplish you know, when you bring all those things into your personhood? If it's to lift yourself up and push somebody else down, then you need to evaluate whether that's what God would have you to do. And I'll help you. It's not. Already, it's not what he would have you to do. Especially in the place where the saints gather themselves together to lift up the name of Christ and to give him the glory. You're going to get in the way of that. The true source of any person's beauty. But to be honest, most times we don't really look at a man's beauty. Maybe you do. I don't. I don't. I can, you can safely assume that. But it is more the female beauty, the outer, that people are attracted to and look to than it is the male's physical. And the true source of a Christian's 
Christian woman's beauty should be her inner and godly character. David Guzik, he said, God works, good works, I should say, make a woman more beautiful than good jewelry. And it's so incredibly true. Because that's sort of the good works, that sort of adornment, it doesn't distract others from communion with God. It doesn't divide, but it brings people together. It doesn't cause envy, it doesn't cause jealousy, but instead it establishes an example that others want to follow in their own lives, which is, again, pointing people to Christ. Now, reading this, lest you think Paul's just sort of riffing here. I'll just give you some of my thoughts on this topic, and he hasn't really spent some time praying about this. Paul's not alone in this admonition. The Apostle Peter, he stated it this way. He said, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold or jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit which, is, which in God's sight is very precious. And so again, true beauty for any follower of Christ, but particularly for the female follower of Christ, is one which springs from a heart in subjection to God's Holy Spirit, wanting to honor God and God's Holy Spirit. And so, look, if you really long to draw someone to yourself, and, and for the good reasons, to kind of point them through you to God, if you really desire that and long for that, with that example that you set, let it, not be, let it be with the example you set, not with your outward appearance, but the inner attitude of your heart. Now, Paul shifts in verse 11, or he continues in verse 11, but in doing so, he shifts from sort of that women's adornment for attendance in public worship, and now he's going to shift to a consideration of what should be the appropriate position in the place of public worship. And I'm going to read to verse 15. We're not going to get all of this today. But he says this. Take a real quick sip. Excuse me. He says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, I do think that's pretty self-explanatory. And so I think we'll move on (laughs) from there. Now, of course, these are some of the most contested words of the New Testament. And, And for good reason. There is the statement about women learning quietly with all submissiveness. People want to know what that means. There's Paul's statement about not permitting a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. There's that little statement about her remaining quiet. Then you have the reason, which I would like a little explanation on, where he says, Adam wasn't deceived, but Eve. Let's talk about that a little. And then this crystal clear statement at the end, women being saved through giving birth. Um, What? (laughs) That's there. So maybe it's not as self-explanatory as I, I, I suggested. So let's just sort of tackle this here. The first thing that I want to do before we sort of start digging into this is remind ourselves, if we are those that trust that the word of God is the word of God, then we have to begin from the place of acknowledging that 1 Timothy chapter 2 
is as God-inspired as John 3.16. And that 1 Timothy 2 is as God-inspired as Psalm 23. That's the first thing we have to do. And so we can't come to this text and say, well, I don't like that, and ignore it. You could do it if you want to, but I, I don't think that's the appropriate way as people that believe in the word of God and trust the word of God is to come to any portion of scripture. All scripture is God breathed, the scripture tells us. So that, that should put away that idea that says, well, Paul was just chauvinistic or that Paul was just a sexist. Or even this one, that look, Paul was a product of his time. He got it wrong. He was a well-meaning individual, but he just got it wrong because he was a product of his time. I would hope we all agree that Paul, if you will, wrote outside of time as he was inspired by God with a word from God for all of us for all of time. And so we can't simply dismiss this writing as something that our society and culture has sort of outgrown. All right, so that's one angle that people come to this passage and, and, if you will, that traditional understanding of this passage. Now, others have approached this text from the perspective that, look, Paul was addressing a specific problem in a specific community, and therefore his teachings and his remedies you know, for those problems were specifically for that time and for that place. And as such, the, the, those that hold to that understanding, they similarly conclude that Paul's remedies no longer apply to our day and our time, first century church, 21st century church. There's three problems, I think, however, with that approach. Number one is this idea that the ancient city of Ephesus you know, was so dominated by, if we'll call these feminist ideas that were completely disrupting the local congregation, there's no historical record that that's even true in the secular records. And so those that'll say that he's specifically dealing with a problem that was there, there's no records showing that there was such a problem that was carrying over into the local congregation. Does that make sense? Are you with me? And so if that's the crux of your argument, it's a weak one because the evidence isn't there to support it, even by secular historians uh, that just wrote simply about Ephesus. Secondly, notice Paul or know this, I should say, Paul gave these same instructions to other churches. So it's not just to the church in Ephesus. He wrote these same, almost word for word, not exactly, but close to it, to the church in Corinth and to the church in Colossae. He wrote to a number of other churches these same things. And so Paul, if Paul is giving these solutions to solve a specific problem in Ephesus, why tell the people of Corinth? And why tell the people in Colossae? And in another place, he says, as I say in every church. Now, someone might argue, well, yeah, just like Ephesus had a problem, so too did Colossae, so too did Corinth. And so, he, really, it's those three churches that he had to address. Some might argue that particular case. But then, again, notice how we started our study today. In verse 8, Paul said, in every place. And again, that phrase in every place, all four times that it is used by Paul in the New Testament and only by Paul in the New Testament, it's referring to the congregation of believers. And that's who Paul is addressing is the congregations of believers that are scattered about, every church in every place. Now, there are others that explain away this traditional understanding by saying Paul wasn't addressing women as a whole, he was addressing wives. And as he says in the book of Ephesus, talking about 
the role of husband and wife and families and the man is supposed to be the to lead the family and so on. But if that is what Paul is addressing here, and which he also addresses in Colossae and in Corinth and in other places, this idea of wives being submissive to their husbands and not the role of women in leadership of the local body, the problem with that is there are two very specific terms for women and wives. And Paul, in all those other places, used the appropriate term. Why all of a sudden wouldn't he use the right term here? You understand where I'm going? Was that clear? Um, I hope it was. And Paul, just like he chose the word for male, he chose the appropriate word here that doesn't refer to wives, but it refers to female. And so that, if you will, addresses those arguments that kind of consider this passage outdated. And we'll just put it aside because it doesn't apply to our culture. There's a second line of argument regarding these verses. It also rejects sort of that traditional, I'm going to call it straightforward understanding of what we are reading here, and thus it's no longer applicable, but it addresses it from a different angle altogether. It doesn't outright reject what Paul says. It just comes to a different conclusion as to what Paul meant from the traditional understanding. And that, that is, the argument would be that those that have given us, if you will, that traditional understanding of this passage, it's the thinking of some that they were just misunderstand, uh, mistaken, that they misunderstood what it was that Paul was trying to communicate. And I'll, I'll be honest, I can respect that. Certainly much more than the person who says, look, I don't like what he says, and so I reject it. I think that's a dangerous way to come to the scripture. But I think we can look at the passage. It's just like that passage with quarreling. Is he talking about quarreling with oneself, or is he talking about quarreling with others? Well, let's have a conversation. Let's break out the languages. Let's figure it out. I think we can come to different conclusions. I I always believe there's a right conclusion, but we can come to different conclusions and still be well-meaning people. And I think that's the second idea of those that don't hold to. I hold to a traditional understanding, but I, I don't disfellowship with those who don't. And so let's unpack this a little bit. Paul begins by saying, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, in some of the older versions, that word quiet, quietly there is translated in silence. And I think that's unfortunate. I think it's an unfortunate interpretation. Because when I read in silence, I hear, sit down, shut up, and don't say anything. And I don't think... That was the message that Paul was trying to convey for a variety of reasons. One, that's kind of mean, and it's kind of harsh. Now, maybe true, but it is kind of mean and harsh, and I don't think that's the angle that Paul is coming from. More importantly, my reason why I don't think Paul is saying, sit down, shut up, and be quiet, or whatever that I said earlier, is because there are other places in the Bible and in the New Testament where women are specifically mentioned as praying. And as speaking in a congregational gathering, 1 Corinthians 11.5, for instance. And so if that's the instance, I don't think it can mean sit down and shut up. Now, earlier in this chapter, back in verse 2, the word that is translated quietly or in silence here in this verse, back in verse 2, it's the same word, and there it is translated as peaceful. And it clearly means there this idea of without contention. And I think that's the meaning that Paul is getting at here 
in, in verse 11 or so that we're at, is without contention. The idea of without contention, it's an attitude of attending to the teaching of others to learn from that teaching what is needful for spiritual growth and advancement. And for the record, I'll say this, that's an attitude that every one of us should have, isn't it? That when the word of God is being taught, we should come to that not ready to fight, but ready to receive and to learn. And maybe not every word I can receive and to learn and apply to my life, but if there's one thing I can take and apply to my life, I'm the better person for it. And so without contention, and so male, female, congregant, pastor, that's how we should all approach the word of God when we come to the word of God. Secondly, Paul says, with all submissiveness. Literally, this is a word that could be translated to be under in rank. And it's a statement that has to do with respecting an acknowledged order of authority. Now, notice that order of authority, not order of ability. I think that's an important understanding. Order of authority, not order of ability. The statement there of one being in submission to another, it has nothing to do with ability. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with worth or anything other than the order of authority in a local body of believers. Think of a business or a place of business. Think of the army or military or something like that. Think, and think about how it would be in utter confusion maybe even to the point of chaos, if there was no order of authority with members submitting to that authority. Society as a whole, and the church in specific, would struggle with confusion and chaos if there weren't those raised up to lead and there weren't those called to submit without contention. Paul goes on, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man whether." Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, in saying I do not permit a woman to teach, Paul's not saying that a woman can never teach. I mean, when I first read this as a brand new believer, I wondered if, like, women should teach in a local high school. You know, and are they allowed to be a teacher? Well, Paul's a teacher. I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. We're not just talking about this general idea of teaching. I'm not talking about the local school. We're not talking about the university or anything like that. Paul's concern, remember, the whole book is order in the local congregation. And in that arena, that's the arena which he is addressing his attention now. And so he's not forbidding women from the practice of teaching anything at any time to any people, first and foremost. Additionally, we know that he's not absolutely forbidding women from becoming teachers in a local congregation of believers. And the reason we know that Titus, for instance, chapter 2, verse 4, for example, we see there Paul instructs that the older women teach the younger women. So he's not banning teacher teaching outright altogether. Also, we know from our study of the book of Acts that we have that example where a husband and wife team, Aquila and Priscilla, and almost always Priscilla is listed first, if that means anything, but Aquila and Priscilla pull aside Apollos and they begin to explain to him the way of God more accurately. Use another word for that. They begin to teach him. They explain the way of God more accurately to him. And so we have what Paul said in that uh, Titus passage. We have the example there in Acts. So there are places where a woman in the church can be and should be teaching. I think what Paul is referring to here is the type of teaching 
that serves as that careful, authoritative transmission of biblical truth to a congregation, which is what we do right here when we gather together on a Sunday morning, amongst other times. In the pastoral epistles, remember, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, that sort of teaching always has the sense of authoritative, public, doctrinal instruction. That, I think, is what Paul is talking about. And his expectation, then, for the order that Timothy was to attain and then maintain there in Ephesus, it included not permitting the women of the congregation to assume that office of the public teacher of that congregation. And as we're going to see in chapter 3, or of the role of the office of the elder, which we'll talk about when we get there in a couple of weeks or so. Now, can men and women, can they dialogue with one another and learn from one another? Yeah, absolutely. I think the scripture uh, instructs us to be edifying one another in our congregation. And gentlemen, I think you make a big mistake. If your wife wants to speak something into your life or uh, another lady in a small group of some setting, I don't want to hear from you, you're a lady. I think you make a huge mistake. I think you'll learn a lot if you just listen and begin to apply. And I think those exhortative dialogue, I think it's expected. Is it appropriate for a woman to teach the children in a church, the middle schoolers? Most people would say, yeah, sure. How about high schoolers? How about kids that's in some other part of the world or in some other time, they'd you know, be married by now? What about young adults, the college group? Is it appropriate for a woman to kind of lead a study with those? Well, I think there's some place here for debate and conversation here. At some point, it has to kick in and start. But I don't think those that do necessarily, oh, you don't believe the Bible. And I think we want to be careful with coming sort of to that conclusion. I think good people can come to different conclusions. Our body has come to the, our, our elder board here, we've come to the conclusion that we have. But what I think Paul is abundantly clear on is the role of teacher, and we, we commonly use the word pastor, but that role of teacher and elders is to be reserved from among the men of the congregation. All men? No. Not all men. And so we have a congregation, 300 or so. There's eight of us that are elders. There's three of us that serve in the role as pastor here. And so it doesn't just mean, whoo, you qualify because you, I was going to use a phrase, uh, you're a man. I was going to, I don't want to say it. Never mind. Paul's going to address that in chapter 3. Which of those men? But certainly from, out from among the men. Now, is Paul's conclusion then, is Paul saying that this somehow makes men better than women? Careful, no amens. Is that what Paul's saying, that this makes men better than women? It is not what Paul is saying. Again, this isn't a statement about male and female equality and who is better than the other. It's not a statement about that at all. In Galatians 3.28, Paul said this. He said, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. So who's better, Jew or Greek? Neither. There's neither male nor female who's better, male or female. Neither. For you are all one in Christ. There's neither slave nor free who's better. Neither. Now that's not to say if we're, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave or free. That's not to say that each of us no longer have our unique roles, our defined roles, just as there are, or were in our society, but just as there are defined roles in the physical my wife and I, we have three kids. She bore the children. And she gave birth to the children. That was her role. 
and try as I might, and let me help out this time. It was never going to happen. We had different roles. Physically, we were designed differently. That doesn't make one more valuable or more important than the other. I love when couples, young couples, and someone, one of them, the wife, is pregnant. And they're like, man, we had such a difficult pregnancy. The husband will say, oh, did we? You know, did we have a difficult <laughs> pregnancy there? It doesn't make one more valuable or more important than the other. It just means that they are different from the other. And so we're, we're out of time today. We're going to stop there. Men, we know from God's word that he has called us to the place of headship in our families and in our churches. And sadly, as I said earlier, too many men have relinquished that role. And so no wonder so many women, godly women, I think, desiring to be godly, have felt that they needed to step up into a position that wasn't being filled. Almost as if they were concluding, well, if nothing's going to happen, something needs to happen. I think more often than not, in those instances, it's an indictment on the men and not so much on the ladies. And so I think the question is, where are the men? Men, where are you? How are you doing? Are you leading in such a way that you are prepared when you come to the end of your days and you're going to have to give an account to God for the way you've led your family and your community. Wrestle with it. And no doubt, if you're, you're in a good place with God, he's going to put his finger on one area or perhaps a hundred areas. But wrestle with it. And don't look to the culture for your cues. Look to the word and look to the Lord as he ministers to you through your Holy Spirit. Don't compare yourself with the culture. Well, I'm doing far better than those guys. They're not even in the home. No, compare yourself with God and let God challenge you as opposed to kind of making yourself feel good by comparing yourself with the worst schmo you can find. That does no good for your family and it does no good for our church. So where are the good and the godly men? Ladies, can you say with all integrity, that your heart has been one of receiving without contention from those that God has placed in your life to spiritually lead you. And again, just like the men, look, if, if your heart is where you want to be honoring the Lord and seeking what the Lord would have for you and to be in the right place with the Lord, go honestly to God and ask him and let him minister to you. And as he puts his finger maybe on one area or like the men, maybe a hundred areas, start dealing with those particular areas. There's an order of operations that God has established in his word. Let's heed it. Let's walk in it, knowing and believing that God knows what is best for us, even more so than our culture. Would you agree with that? All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we need to be challenged by it. We need to let it sort of read our hearts and not us read into it and determine what it's going to say. Lord, we never want to be, I never want to be, and I hope everyone here, someone who finds something they don't like and they just sort of tear that page out. And Lord, I, I know that we can wrestle with these things. We can perhaps come to slightly different conclusions. But we want to make sure that we are doing so in the integrity of our hearts. And so, Father, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would minister to our hearts. You would speak, you would draw, you would convict, and that we'd be ready to respond to whatever it might be you're trying to communicate to us. 
And so bless, Lord, the going forth of your word. Bless this congregation of believers. May we bring honor and glory to you as we lift up your name. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.